I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the third chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Are you guys enjoying this study as much as I am? I hope we continue to go slowly through it and just savor it. And in that spirit, I will only be preaching from verse 1 this morning. I know, I know. But, so that you can get the whole flow of thought here in where the author of the book of Hebrews is taking us, I am going to read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. So follow along with me as I read now Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that what you are about to hear is the living word of our sovereign God and King. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house, not as a servant, I'd like to interject, but as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we acknowledge together humbly, dependently, that we are incapable of understanding your word this morning unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds. Therefore, we pray that you would use your word by your spirit that goes out from your mouth so that it would not return to you empty, but that it may accomplish that which you purpose and may succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Do this in our midst now, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, there's perhaps no reality in the Christian life that is more tragic to the Christian than the reality that each and every one of us, at some point in time and to varying degrees, we will stray in our relationship with the Lord. Our thoughts, our attention, our affections for the Lord will stray away from Him onto the things of this world. We will be distracted. We will be faint-hearted in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our own personal weaknesses, in the midst of suffering. And in that, we will be tempted 
to fall away from the Lord. I think we all experience that to some degree every single day, don't we? Where we feel ourselves drifting and we have to get back on course. But there are also seasons in our lives where that drifting, that straying away from the Lord, is more protracted, it's longer, and it's more severe. And the reason I bring that up is because that's the exact situation that the recipients of this epistle, penned by whoever the author is, most likely the Apostle Paul, but we can't know with absolute certainty, this is the situation that they find themselves in. They're drifting away from the Lord. And here's why. They're Hebrew Christians. They're those who lived their lives in submission to the Mosaic Law, all of its rites and ceremonies. But then at some point in time, they heard the gospel. And they believed. And they were baptized. And they were most likely catechized and brought into membership in the church. And they were experiencing persecution from the unbelieving Jews that they once fellowshiped with in the synagogue. And the Roman government was bearing down on them because Christianity was not a recognized, legitimate religion. And they handled this suffering pretty well initially. But then as time went on, some of them began to fall away and say, you know what, this Jesus thing ain't really worth it. We're going to go back to Judaism. And so they abandoned the faith. Some had already done that. And now there's a remnant left in the church that the author of the epistle of the Hebrews is writing to, and he's saying, you need to hold fast to your confession. You need to hold fast to Jesus and what you know about Him. Because as we just sang a little while ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's true of each and every one of us, isn't it? And so then we are confronted with the question, how do we persevere in the faith? How do we endure? How do we press on when we're tempted to abandon the Lord in the face of our circumstances and our own continued sinfulness and weakness? How do we endure? And the answer of not just this particular verse, but the entire book of Hebrews is crystal clear. And it can be summed up in two words as it is summed up here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Consider Jesus. Consider Him. Meditate on Him. Reflect on Him. His person and His work throughout all of Scripture. And as you do so, he will stir your affections. Now, no doubt, who's the one that causes us to persevere? It's not us. It's the Lord himself. He keeps us. But how does he keep us? He keeps us through means that he's graciously given us. And the chief mean of all is the word of God in which we are revealed the glories of the Son of God and all that he has done for us. So how do we persevere? By considering, meditating, ruminating, day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour, the glories of our Savior. And so this is what the author of the book of Hebrews is telling his audience. And so what I want us to do this morning is to see three realities that we are to consider concerning our relationship to Jesus and his relationship to us. Three realities that all Christians at all times should consider 
so that the Lord might use those to cause us to persevere in the faith when we're tempted to turn away. And the first thing we are to consider in verse 1 is our spiritual family. Our spiritual family. Second of all, we're to consider our heavenly calling. And then thirdly, we're to consider none other than our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And I pray that as we do this, as we meditate on these realities, that this will prove to be spiritual food for your souls, even as it has been spiritual food for me, as I have reflected upon the one who will keep us and save us to the uttermost. So let's look first then at how we are to consider our spiritual family that we might persevere in the faith. Look at verse 1 with me. And by the time we're done this morning, perhaps you'll have this verse memorized because we're going to read it so many times. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, right out of the gate, we have this word, therefore. And anytime you see that as you're studying the Bible, you need to understand that you're being clued into the fact that everything that the author is about to say is logically connected to everything that he has already said. And so what has the author already said? In just these two short chapters that we've spent a lot of time in, we've seen that he's just been exalting Jesus and flaunting the superiority of Jesus over anything that has come before him in redemptive history. And so right out of the gate, what do we see? That Jesus has spoken, I'm sorry, the Father has spoken, God has spoken uh, in the Old Covenant through many prophets in various times and various ways. But now he's spoken his best and final word in his Son. And so you have the reality that Jesus is greater than anything that has come before him, any of the prophets that have come before him. And then he transitions into saying that Jesus is a better mediator than any of the angels under the old covenant. Jesus is greater than them. Why? Because Jesus is not a servant in God's kingdom. He is a son and the king of God's kingdom, and the angels do his bidding. They care for his subjects because they are his subjects that he sends to care for the offspring of Abraham. And then we gloried and meditated on the reality that he took flesh. The Son, this glorious one, took flesh upon himself that he might redeem us and save us. And so he's showing us the superiority of Jesus in absolutely all things. But now he's going to transition from this glorious doctrine to now applying it to exhorting them and applying it to their specific situation. And what he's going to tell them is, you need to reflect in the midst of your suffering and temptation to turn away. You need to reflect on who you now are in Christ and what it means for you to be united to Jesus. And so that's why he calls them what? He calls them holy brothers. And I hope you don't miss the pastoral sensitivity of the author here. Right? Because he's got some hard things he's got to say to the saints that he's writing to, doesn't he? He's got to tell them things like in chapter 5 that they've become dull of hearing. That they're in danger of, of receiving judgment from the Lord. Worse judgment than anybody ever received under the old covenant. He's got things that he's got to tell them that are harsh, but true. And what he wants them to know is, I'm telling you this because I love you. Not because I'm cruel, not because I'm mean-spirited, not because I think I'm any better than you, 
but because we're brothers. There's a kinship. There's a fellowship. There's a community that he's appealing to, saying, listen to me, because I'm not trying to push you away. I'm actually trying to draw you in closer. And so I don't want us to miss that. But what I also don't want us to miss is how it can be true of them that they are both holy and brothers. How can that be accurate descriptions of these fallen human beings? Let's, and let's look at each one of them. First, let's look at the fact that they're called holy. How can fallen human beings be called holy? Because what's the standard of holiness? Perfect holiness. The law. That perfect conformity to it and obeying it. And has any human being ever perfectly obeyed the law of God, save Jesus? I know you were all ready to say Jesus, weren't you? Save Jesus? No. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you see, in that, we've become unclean. Clean and uncleanness were a huge thing in the Old Covenant, weren't they? You had to be kicked out of the camp if, if you were unclean for some reason. And only after one of the priests investigated you could you come back in after you'd been declared clean and shown to be clean. And the reality is that we are all unclean and unfit to come into the presence of God. Instead, we deserve what? Not fellowship with God and His love and His grace, but His wrath for our sin and rebellion and unholiness and unrighteousness. So then how can they be called holy? Well, they can only be called holy through their union with Jesus. And the author of the book of Hebrews has already presented that case. Look back at chapter 2 with me and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11. What does he say? For he who sanctifies. Who's the one who sanctifies? Jesus in this context. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified. Who are the ones who are sanctified? We're the ones in need of sanctification, right? We're the ones who are sanctified. All have one source, or as Pastor Chad argued weeks back, nature. We have one human nature. Jesus makes us holy by taking our human nature upon himself, and he fulfills all righteousness. He perfectly obeys the law that we failed to, and then that's attributed to us. That's credited to our account, given to us as a gracious, glorious gift. And then all the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin and rebellion, our unholiness and uncleanness, that gets attributed to him, and he pays that penalty on the cross so that we are forgiven and declared righteous. We're positionally holy in Jesus. He has sanctified us, set apart us from all of humanity so that we are reckoned as holy in God's sight. And because of that, and because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, as an extension of that, we're then practically made holy, aren't we? We're conformed to the image of Christ so that we reflect His character more and more, so that we, yes, slowly but surely become more loving and more gracious and more patient and more kind and more truthful. And so what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, brothers, you're holy now. And you're holy not because of you, but because of Jesus. Because of your union with him. Because he has sanctified you. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. Both in justification, in which you're declared righteous, and sanctification, in which you're actually practically made holy and righteous from one degree of glory 
to the next. And so they're to revel in this. How could they abandon that status and that position to go back to the old covenant when this new covenant privilege is theirs? But then he goes on and he wants them to contemplate the fact that they're brothers. Now again, how can we be called brothers of Jesus and sons of God? Because what do we know about ourselves as fallen human beings? What do we know from the Gospel of John? What does Jesus say about us? He says, by nature, we're children of the devil. Children of wrath. Enemies of God. Because of how we hate Him and spurn His law. So then how is it that we become brothers? Well, again, the author of the book of Hebrews has already told us. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. For he who sanctifies Jesus... And those who are sanctified, believers, all have one nature. That is why, listen to this, he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. He's saying this to the Father, Jesus is. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. The Father has given a people to the Son, and He has come as the only begotten of the Father, the only natural born Son of the Father, if you will. And He's humbled Himself and done everything necessary for you and I to be sons of God. And so, what does that make Jesus then? That makes Him our brother. And how is he treated on the cross? He's treated as if he was not a son because that's what you and I deserve, brothers and sisters. But that's been taken away from us in our place. And the perfect track record of the Son of God is now given to us so that we're what? We're now adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're um, sons and daughters of, of God himself. And you say, wait a minute, he's saying holy brothers... Are there no women in the congregation? Yes, there's women as well. You're not being excluded, ladies. But under the old covenant, who received the inheritance? Only the sons, only the firstborn son. And so, ladies, you would have been excluded from that. But here's the incredible gospel reality. You're now sons in the firstborn son. And so you're called what? Co-heirs. As much co-heirs as me or any other man. So you're not being excluded. But behold this glorious reality. We're holy. We're brothers. And so we have a spiritual family now because we've been adopted by the Father through the Son and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so you know this. Even when you're not at sovereign grace, Pastor Chad's at another church this morning. But I guarantee you, as he's worshiping with them, he is not because he's left the church or anything. He's out of town with his son. Don't worry. Some, some, I saw some heads immediately turn to their spouse like, what's going on? Nothing. He's just out of town on a little vacation. Don't worry. But I guarantee you, he's going to worship with the saints and feel a kinship there, even though he doesn't know those people as he knows you. Why? Because there's a spiritual family wherever the people of God are gathered, and we're a part of that. And so what's the argument? Why would you turn from this new covenant reality that is yours in Jesus and go back to the old covenant, go back to Moses? How could you abandon your family like that, that the Lord has so graciously given you? And so it's meant to draw them into this reality so that they live in light of it. And brothers and sisters, we're no different. 
We need to constantly meditate and consider our spiritual family and our standing before God and one another as holy brothers and sisters and treat each other as such. Fellowship together. Letting brotherly love continually grow among us as we share love and fellowship together in all of life. We're meant to encourage and strengthen each other to that end. And this type of consideration... The fact that we're a part of a spiritual family is part of, the, part of the means that the Lord uses to keep us, that we might persevere in the faith, these incredible new covenant realities that are ours in Jesus. So the first way we persevere in the faith is by considering how God has brought us into a spiritual family, but that's not the only thing we're to consider. Secondly, we are to persevere in the faith by considering our heavenly calling. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now notice again his appeal to your sharers in a calling, your partakers in a particular calling. And so again, the pastoral appeal is, I'm alongside of you, I'm not above you, scolding you. I'm alongside of you trying to encourage you forward in the faith to not just, uh, not just to, to persevere in the faith, but to actually mature and grow. And I'm a sharer in that calling with you. And what, what is the calling? The calling is not a, and I'm going to make a distinction here, between a general call and an effectual call. It's a distinction that theologians make. It's a really helpful distinction, and let me make it for you. A general call is when someone who is not elect hears the gospel, doesn't respond, and goes to the grave without responding. You know people like this, right? People who you know have heard the gospel, and they never responded. So they received a general call to believe, but it was, they, they, they never did because they weren't elect. But then for the elect, you have an effectual call in which the Spirit takes the Word and draws you to Himself and you do believe. You see, the call of the gospel is effectual in your life. And that's what he's saying they're partakers in. Now, he goes on to describe this calling as heavenly. And I really want to focus in on that. What does it mean that this calling is heavenly? Well, first of all, uh, it means that this calling is from heaven. It originates in the heavens. And secondly, it's an upward call to heaven. From heaven to heaven. So let me look, let's look at each one of these. First of all, how is it a call from heaven? Well, quite simply, it is our Father who art in heaven, who calls us into fellowship with Himself and the Son and the Spirit. So it originates from heaven. It finds its source in heaven. Its fountain is flowing forth from heaven down to us. And if you want evidence of that, turn with me very briefly to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Paul writes to the Corinthians... God is faithful. So we have the generic term God. He is faithful. So which person of the Trinity are we talking about is faithful? By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it must be the Father, right? Because He's calling you into fellowship with His Son. 
And so this is the whole point. It's a heavenly calling in that the calling is from our Father who art in heaven into fellowship with Himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that John basically says in John 6.44. Excuse me, that Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44. What does He say? You don't have to turn there. But Jesus says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So who's the one who draws you? Who's the one who calls you? It is the Father who is in heaven. And so in this sense, that calling is heavenly. But it's not just heavenly because it comes from the Father. It's also heavenly because of the means that the Father uses to draw or call you to himself. And what are those means? Well, think about it. Believers here this morning... When you responded to the gospel, what is it that you heard preached to you? What is the gospel? It's the word of God, isn't it? The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes from the holy word. And where did this holy word come from? Did it originate from man? Now, it was mediated, inspired. Holy men were inspired as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote it down. But where does it originate from? It's a revelation from heaven. It comes down from heaven. The gospel does. The good news. God's word. It's revealed to us. We don't ascend to heaven to bring it down, but God condescends to give it to us. And more than that, why do you believe in the word that you heard? Not because of you. Not because of some inherent goodness in you or your free will. No, because the Holy Spirit came and regenerated you. You were dead and lost in transgressions. You, you in and of yourself were incapable of responding, even as Lazarus in the grave was incapable of responding, until life was given to him, and then naturally he responded. And the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you and gives you the gift of faith, and you believe, and you're saved. But where does that Holy Spirit come from that is given to you so that you do believe the word that has also come from heaven? That Holy Spirit and that word all come from heaven. The Father who is in heaven is the one who's called you. So do you see how it's a call from heaven? It's a heavenly calling and that it comes from heaven? Well, second of all, it's a call to heaven. And again, this has already been laid out for us in um, the, the letter to the Hebrews. Turn back there and look at Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry, not Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 2 And verse 10. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, now who is the he there? The Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. He's bringing us as the sons and daughters of God to glory. And what is that glory? Where is that glory? It's in heaven. It's the glory that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share with one another, enjoy with one another. And we're brought into that in our salvation. So brothers and sisters, understand this world, this earth is not your home. You understand that, right? You have an upward call, as Paul calls it. You are having a place prepared for you, says Jesus. There are many houses, I'm sorry, many rooms in my Father's house, and I'm preparing one for you so that you can come and be with me and with the Holy Spirit. 
What does John Newton say in, in his hymn, Amazing Grace? We're going to sing it later. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This is not your home. You are going to be brought into the heavenlies, and you are going to experience perfect, unbroken fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. You see how it's a heavenly call to heaven, not just a call from heaven. And this is theirs in Jesus. This has been given to them. The Father's given it. The Son has brought it about in revealing the gospel, and the Spirit has applied it to them. Brothers and sisters, do you see the glory, the grace, the love that our triune God has for you in effectually calling Him to yourself when you were dead and wanted to have nothing to do with Him? He gave you the ability to be able to respond to Him. And so you have by God's grace. And we are to meditate on this when we're tempted to turn away from the Lord, when we're tempted to drift in our thoughts and in our affections, even as this original audience is. And so again, He's pointing to these new covenant privileges that are theirs in Jesus, the administrator of the new covenant. And He's saying, why would you want to turn back to the types and shadows? When you have these unspeakable, glorious privileges that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has given to you. He's appealing to these privileges that have been given to them. But as we all know in life, anytime you're given privileges, there's responsibilities too, aren't there? Now, oftentimes those responsibilities are delights. Those duties bring about great joy. And that is the case here. Because then what does he move on to? He moves on to the responsibility of considering, and this is our third point, our glorious Savior. We have the responsibility, the duty, the delight to consider our glorious Savior as another means by which we persevere in the faith. So let's look at verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, I hope it's already become abundantly clear at this point in the sermon that when the author here speaks about consider, he's not talking about some cursory glance at a doctrine and how it's taught in the scriptures and going, oh, okay, I get it, check, I can keep my orthodoxy card. Because I believe that, all right, moving on with the rest of my life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an intent, diligent, one might say obsessive focus, absorption in the revelation of who the Son is and what He has done for us. The best comparison I can make is is how um, a jeweler will take a diamond, let's say, that's well beyond a size and cut and clarity in all of your C's. You know what I'm talking about, those of you that are married recently. Um, Diamond, and he's holding it up, and he's got his monocle in, and he's looking at this thing, and he's just mesmerized and investigating every single light refraction, every face, every facet of that diamond. He's turning it, and he's obsessed, obsessively looking at it. Why? Because therein is beauty and glory to behold. Now, if that's true of some 
lump of coal under pressure. How much more true is that of the one who made it? Jesus is more precious than any diamond, any gem, any stone. And we are to diligently, intently, decidedly focus and meditate, reflect upon Him and His glories as He's revealed to us in sacred Scripture. Now, why? Why are we to be absorbed by that? Because the author says, it is He who is our confession. It says that right there at the tail end of verse 1. He is our confession. In other words, things about Jesus are true and they've been revealed to us in God's word and we confess that we agree with what God has said about Jesus the Son. And so what's true about Jesus is what we confess. It's what we believe. And we don't just confess it and then get on with our lives. No, we meditate on it and we talk about it with each other and we think about it as we're standing and as we're sitting and as we're lying down because our Savior is glorious. And so that's why the author of the book of Hebrews here reminds us of two short descriptions of who Jesus is for us. He's what? He's the apostle and he is the high priest of our confession. Now before I break down, I want to look at each one of those individually. But before we do that, there's something I want to make you aware of. When a first century Jew would have heard these offices mentioned, the office of apostle, or it's really a prophetic office, and then he hears the office of high priest, he's going to think, or she is going to think, of two specific Old Covenant characters in the Old Testament. You know who? When he thinks of an apostle, or a sent one, a messenger, he's going to think of Moses. Why? Because who is Moses? He is the one that God sent after the Lord Yahweh heard the cries of his people under the weight of their captivity in Egypt. And he said, Moses, you're going to go deliver my people. You're going to be my spokesman. You're going to be my mouthpiece. And so he delivers them out of the land of Egypt to the promised land where they can worship God. And so Moses is the apostle par excellence of the Old Covenant, probably the greatest figure of the Old Covenant in these folks' mind. And then the second of all, when a high priest is mentioned, they're going to think of Moses' brother Aaron. Why? Because Aaron is the first priest of Israel. And so that's where their minds are going to go. And the author of the book knows that. And he wants their minds to go there. Why? Because now what is he saying? All of these offices under the old covenant of prophet and priest and king that were carried out by various people and then they would die and then somebody else would have to take it over and then die. All of those offices have now been met perfectly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the prophet, priest, and king par excellence. And so there's no more need for any more prophet or priests or kings because Jesus is it. He is the reality that the types and shadows pointed to. And so you see how he's furthering the argument here. This, is, this argument's going to be shot all the way through chapter 3, that Jesus has brought about a better new covenant over Moses' old covenant. And so the argument is, why are you going to turn from this new covenant and its privileges and its administrator, the prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, back for these lesser types and shadows? It's not even an option to return back. And so he's saying, press on and continue to hold fast to Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
of our confession because he's so much better and greater and more supreme than anything that came before him. But by calling Jesus our apostle and high priest, he's reminding his audience of what he's already said in chapters 1 and 2. And so what I want us to do is to look at each one of these titles very briefly. First, let's look at how Jesus is an apostle. And if you're looking at me going, Jesus is, is an apostle? He's the apostle? What, what are you talking about? Now, you're excused if you have not thought about Jesus that way. Because the reality is that this is the only time and the only place in the New Testament where this explicit office is applied to Jesus. Now, the concept is there, particularly in the um, book of John, the Gospel of John. Why? Because Jesus constantly refers to himself as what? The one who's sent by the Father. The Father has sent me. Again and again and again. So conceptually, this isn't anything new about Jesus. But you're just not used to the title. But he is the apostle of our confession. He's the apostle par excellence. Yes, there were many other sent ones like Moses. Messengers who came before Jesus, but they were just types and shadows. And Jesus is the apostle who is then able to send other apostles after him. But Jesus is unique amongst all of these messengers and sent one and apostles. And so let's talk about that. There are similarities, but the differences are much greater. First of all, Jesus is not simply a messenger or apostle from God. Rather, he is God himself, isn't he? Jesus is unlike any other messenger before him because he's not just sent by God. He is God himself. Jesus is by nature, in his divinity, God. Now, why is that important? Because what has Jesus come to do? The Lord's spoken at various times in various ways throughout history, through various prophets, but now he's given his best, fullest, perfect revelation of himself in his Son. What has the Son come to do? To reveal the Father. That's why Jesus tells Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus had to be God in order to make that revelation known because he had to have that intimate knowledge of God to make this message known. Otherwise, we might doubt it, wouldn't we? Come on, this is such good news. Can that really be the news that God wants us to know? Are you sure you're not wrong, Moses? Are you sure you're not wrong, Paul? But then when Jesus comes and makes it known to us, The one who is God himself and knows those thoughts about the Father because they share in that divinity. He is singly fit to make this revelation known. And so unlike any other messenger before him, Jesus is unique because he's not just sent by God, he's God himself. And so he's singly fit to make the Father known to us because he's one with the Father in his divinity. But you see what that means then, right? Jesus is also unique as an apostle because he's not just God's, uh, God, God as a messenger, but then the message is also Jesus himself. Jesus is the message that he comes to proclaim, right? Jesus comes and he declares the good news of who he is and what he's come to do. And you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to believe that message or reject it. And so Jesus comes and he makes himself known. That's very unique, right? Because Moses doesn't come and say, hey, Israelites, let me tell you the good news about Moses. 
I think he had a brief moment where he thought that was the case. And what does he end up doing? He ends up killing an Egyptian and burying him in the sand. And he's got to go in exile for 40 years because he wouldn't wait and do what the Lord wanted him to do. The good news is not Moses. The good news is what Yahweh will do through him to deliver his people. But Jesus is the deliverance of God. He is the grace of God to his people, to his elect. And so he's come, not just as God as a messenger, but he is the message that he makes known. And so he's greater than any apostle who has come before him. And that's why he can send apostles out like we see in the book of Acts. To make this good news known because he has entrusted it to them and sent the Holy Spirit to empower them to make God known to man. And isn't that really what an apostle does? An apostle makes God known to man. And who can do that better than Jesus who is God himself? Amen? Okay. Now, he doesn't simply want them to consider Jesus' apostleship. That first office, that prophetic office, if you will, where Jesus represents the people to God, he also wants them to consider Jesus' priesthood, that he is a high priest. And this is one of the great themes that's going to run through the rest of the book of Hebrews. But what has the author of the book of Hebrews already told us about Jesus' priesthood? We'll go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of the Son... He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, pay special attention here. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Jesus, this verse is telling us, is uniquely different than any high priest who came before him, right? Because the high priests would do what? If the apostles or prophets represented God to us, the priests do what? They represent us to God. They're mediators so that we can be, be uh, considered clean and, and, and interact with God through them. But what were the priests constantly having to do? Constantly having to slaughter animals. Animal after animal after animal. They couldn't sit down because they were constantly having to stand, make atonement for the people's sin. Animal after animal slaughtered. And so they wouldn't get any rest, and then they'd die, and then another priest would take his place. But Jesus is a priest, not just for a short period of time. He does die once, but now he rose from the dead and lives forever. And so he is our high priest who intercedes for us forever. He won't be replaced by another high priest, and there's no need for any more priests. But Jesus is also unique, not just that his priesthood is perpetual, but that he offers himself as the sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats, the author of the book of Hebrews will say later, could never atone for sins. But the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that could. And so what does Jesus do? He takes our sins upon himself and he pays the full penalty of the Father's wrath. Pays it in full so that he's on the cross saying what? It is finished. And so what is he doing now at the Father's right hand? He's sitting. Why? The atoning work of the Son is done. Brothers and sisters, you need to hear that this morning. Because if you're anything like me, you've spent a good part of this last week thinking, Lord, can I give you this to make you happy? Lord, can I do this to make you 
look upon me with favor? Oh, he doesn't. Look at the circumstances of my life. Look at how sinful I still am. There's no way he can be pleased with me. Maybe if I do this. Brothers and sisters, the atoning work is done. The Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is your evidence that there's nothing that you can do. It's been done. So stop trying. And I'm preaching that to myself. Stop trying. We have a high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice, and it's done. And now, as we live the rest of our lives on this earth, what is he able to do? Because he's taken on our humanity. He's able, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, I know you come to God with tender consciences, and who's sitting there at the Father's right hand? A merciful, faithful high priest. And he's able to help you when you're tempted. Don't run from him. He doesn't turn away from you in disgust. He draws near to you, so draw near to him. Because Jesus is the high priest of our confession who has made atonement for us so that there's nothing left to do but to be lost in wonder and awe and praise of Him and what He's done and live a life out of gratitude and security in your relationship with the Lord. He's not looking to pinch any more out of you. You have nothing to give Him. The Son has paid it all. And so all to Him we owe out of gratitude and thankfulness. But do you see The argument here, why would you go back to the old covenant types and shadows? You can't. Consider your spiritual family. That you're holy brothers because of your union with Jesus. How can you abandon your spiritual family? You can't. And how can you consider turning away from this heavenly calling? You won't be able to turn away because the Father's got you in the palm of His hand. The Son will not let you go. He will move you and cause you to persevere. And you will listen to my command to consider the Son even as you're drifting away from Him. And so I'm going to exhort you and admonish you. And behold, Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, He perfectly makes God known to us. And he can do that because he's God and man. And he perfectly, as our high priest, represents us to God. And he can do that perfectly because he's fully God and fully man. Do you see how glorious this is? Consider Jesus, brothers and sisters. Consider the one who says to you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one, no one, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So brothers and sisters, Consider the one who preserves you. And as you're considering him in his word, in prayer, fellowship, communion with him and with the brothers and sisters, he is keeping you. 
So press on, knowing that he will save you to the uttermost. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are aware of the fact that you are holy, holy, holy. And we're thankful that because we are now holy in your Son, in our justification and sanctification, we don't run from that fact. It is a great delight to our souls. And it overwhelms us that we're able to have fellowship with you, commune with you in your word, in prayer, in singing, in the ordinances that you, Lord Jesus, have given to your church. And so we pray that we would consider you, that you would sustain us, cause us to endure and persevere as you say you will in your word, and that we would consider our spiritual family, consider our heavenly calling, and consider you, Jesus, the one who represents God to us and us to God. And may we be lost in wonder, on praise all the days of our lives, living our lives out of gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done for us. Do this in our midst, we pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.